Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. And welcome back to the Prep to Pro NBA Draft Podcast. My name is Ben Pfeiffer, and as always, I'm joined by my co-host, Max Carlin. Max, how's it going? I'm doing well, Ben. How are I'm you? I'm doing well, despite the fact that I just messed up that intro for the first time in God knows how many episodes. But today, we have a very different, special, and important episode of the podcast, as we are joined by Curtis Harris, a PhD, can- a PhD candidate in history and the owner of Pro Hoops History on Twitter, a basketball historian. So, Curtis, thank you so much for, for joining. How are you doing today? Hey, doing well. Uh, never imagined to be on a basketball uh, NBA draft podcast, but here, here I am. Because usually I know nothing about the draft, so. <laughs> As sports keep coming back, so does your chance to bet on them with our exclusive wagering partner, betonline.ag. Major League Baseball will soon be in full swing, and there are no shortage of ways to get in on the action. Bet Online has all the odds, futures, and props for you to bet on. Also, tune in as Floyd Money Mayweather joins the Bet Online team in a new segment called The Ice is Right, where he talks about his expansive jewelry collection. He'll give you the chance to win some great prizes and bet on the cost of his bling. Visit betonline.ag to check out all the odds and up to date sports news. Don't forget to sign up and take advantage of all the welcome back sports bonuses. Bet Online, your, on- your online wagering experts. Yeah, well, as, as Ben mentioned, we're doing a, a bit of a different episode today. Uh, I mean, in the wake of the NBA's historic, whether you want to call them boycotts or, or, or strikes or whatever it may be, uh, in the wake of that historic labor action uh, and in you know the current climate of the United States in which uh, you know, police violence against black people is a you know, uh, you know, very, very uh, salient issue, and something that's obviously highly relevant to the NBA and um, and uh, I the draft in, in many ways as well. We wanted to have to, to have Curtis on to sort of enlighten us about the history of the draft uh, with it, you know, in relation to labor and race, uh, because they are such central issues to uh, to the draft. So uh, I guess without uh, without further ado, um, Curtis, let's let's talk about the start of the NBA draft. So. I guess the the first draft is in is in 1947, correct? The, it's a BAA draft. Uh, yeah. So, well, uh, for the for the audience, I should correct myself. Uh, I know nothing about the current uh, upcoming NBA draft. <laughs> I usually don't pay attention to college basketball. I, do, I am aware of historic drafts, so uh, I'm not trying to undercut my credentials. <laughs> um, but yeah, so the. Uh, so the first thing to get straight uh, for the audience and for anyone interested in uh, NBA history uh, is to re- recognize that the NBA uh, was created out of two two different leagues. So you have the um, the BAA, which you just mentioned, uh, the Basketball Association of America, uh, which was founded in 1946. And then you had the National Basketball League, the NBL, that was founded a decade earlier in uh, 1937. So the NBL... Uh, the, the league started in the 1930s. 
uh, as far as I can tell and have researched and other people have done, uh, really didn't have any sort of unified, uh, cohesive draft system. So it was basically the teams would kind of sign guys out of college, but there was no uh, league-wide draft that would take place uh, during the 30s and even going into the 40s. Uh, so, And so that was essentially like a free agency type period prior to free agency yeah. being disallowed and then allowed again? Uh, yeah, so... Don't want to quite over, go overboard and say there's free agency necessarily, but like as you exited college, um, you know, it was so haphazard back then and uh, the mm-hmm. pro basketball was so diffuse because like there were several different leagues. Like it wasn't just the NBL. There was the American Basketball League. Uh, there were independent barnstormers like the Harlem Globetrotters. Uh, I mean, just tons of those. Uh, so like guys had kind of like their pick to, as to which team and league they signed with coming out of college. Uh, but by 1946, when you had the BAA, when they formed, uh, they, they took a more structured approach, I guess you can say, and they did instill uh, the collegiate draft. Uh, so if you were already a professional uh, in 1946, like the BAA wouldn't subject you to a draft. But if you were coming out of college, uh, you were put into what they called the college draft. So, um, yeah, that, that's how that started. And uh, so there's. Yeah, so uh, the, the, the going forward, that's how the NBA would kind of work with. They went with the BAA model with the draft instead of going with the NBL. Because uh, even in the 1947, 1948, 1949, there's instances of the NBL, um, you know, kind of just uh, almost assigning players to, to different teams. Like a team might be like, ah, oh, we want to sign this guy in the NBL, just kind of like on the down low, be like, okay, sure, you guys have first dibs on them. See what you can do. And if you can't sign them, we'll maybe move them on to another team, see if they can do something <laughs> Um, so the NBL was a little bit more, um, I don't know, communal as to how they <laughs> assign player, like, like what's, what's going to help the league out best, uh, which team would this player best go with? Whereas the BAA, uh, in the 1940s, which is like, all right, this is the roster or the, uh, the draft order, you know, one through six or whatever. You this, this is your turn to pick, pick who you want. Uh, but that player was then, you know, basically tethered, uh, to the team that picked them from that point forward. So the NBL, were they then more interested in sort of equitable talent dispersal to maintain some sort of competitive balance or? Uh, by the late 40s, they were. Um, in the night, like in the 1930s, during the Great Depression, it was just basically like, whoever you can get, you can just get them. Like, uh, so teams were stacked with like, I mean, it was almost like, very, it was very regional. So like uh, a good example is like the Oshkosh All-Stars <laughs> out of Wisconsin. Like most of their players were from uh North northern Wisconsin, so around the city of Oshkosh, Green Bay, uh, that area. And they got in a few guys from outside of the re- region, uh, most notably Leroy, Ed- Leroy Edwards, who's from Indiana. Uh, but typically, yeah, teams would get guys from the local region just because, like, guys want to play kind of close to home anyways uh, back at that point. Um, so, yeah, it wasn't necessarily an effort to – it wasn't out of generosity necessarily. It's just, like, you know, it just made the most sense from their mindset back at that point. Uh, whereas the BAA, they, they, they envisioned themselves as being, you know, more, um, more big league, I guess is the best term. So they're like, we, we, we can have guys from any part of the country play for this, this team. Although they still had a lot of local, uh, products play for teams. Like the New York Knicks had a lot of guys from New York city, uh, just because like, you know, managers at that point were most familiar with guys within their region. Cause that's, those are the college games they went to go see most often. Uh, they still had, they had a, more open mindset to having uh, people move around the league more often. So when the BAA installed the draft, were they, were they trying, were they at all interested in, in like 
a, a you know competitive balance thing that we that we see nowadays with the draft, or is it purely salary suppression to stop competition over securing these guys' talents? No, it, it wasn't uh, salary suppression. Well, not deliberate salary suppression at that point. Like they, they did. I mean, they did also want to you know break the bank paying anybody, um, let alone rookies. Uh, so it wasn't like today where you have like a, a direct like cap on how much a rookie can make. Like it wasn't that uh, deliberate. Uh, but definitely the overall structure was to keep the salary or not even keep the salary, keep the player tied to a team. So in addition, this is very important. In addition to the collegiate draft, you have the reserve clause. So this is what tied a player to a team almost in perpetuity. Uh, so say you're, let's just stick with the Knicks. Like you're drafted at, a, let's say, uh, NYU or uh, Fordham, uh, some university near there. Uh, New York Knicks get your get your rights and they keep your rights for the rest of your career unless they decide to cut you or trade you. And you have no say as to whether or not you're cut or traded. Well, I mean, not legally or um, not within the rules of the league. You can try to hold out. But that's kind of going outside the bounds. What was accepted? Although players did it, but uh, you were supposed to belong to that team in perpetuity. So obviously that limits your ability to make money if you can't negotiate with another team. Only the Knicks have the right to negotiate with you every year to re-up your contract. So uh, that's how they kept the salaries under control as best they could. Um, now, the problem with that was, though, is that uh, when you had the two leagues, the NBL and the BAA, competing with each other, that basically did create de facto free agency. Because if you were drafted by the BAA, you could be like, well, I don't like what the Knicks are offering. Maybe I'll go try to sign with a team in the NBL. And the BAA couldn't do anything about it because this is a whole different league. Uh, that, that actually happened with Dolph Shays. That's actually the specific example I'm thinking of. Uh, Dolph Shays graduated from NYU. Uh, he was drafted by the Knicks in the BAA. Uh, he didn't like the offer he got from the Knicks. Um, and so he negotiated with the Syracuse Nationals in the NBL. And uh, he liked the money better than Syracuse Nationals were offering. Syracuse is pretty close to New York City, where Dolph was from. So Dolph was like, hey, you know, it's worth it. I'll go ahead and travel up to Syracuse, get paid a better salary. And I'm um, still not that far away from my parents in New York City. And, of course, he spends like 16 years playing for the Syracuse Nationals and the Knicks. Uh, kind of rude that they weren't able to uh, fork over 2000 extra dollars a year <laughs> to get Dolph Shays. Uh, that's how that worked out. And so then eventually the, the, the BAA and the NBL merge. But do we kind of see this again in the 60s and 70s with the ABA? Do we yeah. see that the draft system is kind of yeah, uh, yeah, that's actually a big part of my dissertation is kind of seeing how um, what happened in the late 40s kind of repeats itself in the late 60s and early 70s when you have the NBA and ABA going at each other. Uh, so the NBA, you know, as I said, kind of uh, incorporates the, uh, the model from the BAA with the, with the college draft system. But yeah, when the ABA shows up in 1967, the ABA is like, yeah, we technically have a draft, but they kind of played it like the NBL. We're like, well, we do have a draft, but we're willing to kind of fudge the rules a little bit and get a guy to a better team or, I guess, the most appropriate team to strengthen the league because they, they had just started out and they wanted to compete with the NBA. So, um, for example, when they were negotiating with Kareem Abdul-Jabbar to try to get him into the ABA instead of going to the Milwaukee Bucks, they were like, hey, we'll have you play with the you know the New York Nets because that's where Kareem was from. He was from New York City. So they are like, well, you can play for the New York Nets, play close to home again. Uh, but Kareem didn't like the way they negotiated with him. Um, like that's a whole nother side story. Uh, but Kareem was like, you make me one offer. If the offer's not good, I like, I don't, <laughs> like, I don't negotiate. You get one chance. Bucks, what's your offer? 
ABA, what's your offer? And Kareem was like, I'm going with the Bucks offer. They they gave me a better offer. He's like, don't try to lowball me. Give me what you think the best offer is. Um, so that in that instance, it didn't work out for the ABA. But um, in 1975, uh, David Thompson, another big college star uh, coming out of NC State, um, he was drafted by the Atlanta Hawks with the number one overall pick, no less, uh, in the NBA. Uh, but the Hawks lost out on him because the um, the Denver Nuggets in the ABA got Thompson's rights from the Virginia Squires. And the Squires, good guy, they were selling rights left and right. Uh, they were just trying to uh, – were, they, were they, they were involved in Dr. J as well, right? Yes. Like they gave away Julius Irving after two years. <laughs> they gave away George Gervin after a year and a half. Like the, the Squires are just like, we, we got all these good players. Who wants to buy them? It was like a, Could you imagine <laughs> David Thompson, Dr. J, and George Gervin on the same team? Yeah, they also had Charlie Scott, but Charlie Scott kind of left them on his own. Uh, but like they had so many good players now in the Hall of Fame, but they're just like, who wants these players? We, we, we don't want to keep any of them. Uh, so the Squires technically drafted David Thompson in the ABA draft. They did it at the behest of the Denver Nuggets. So they just like gave the Nuggets to draft rise to Thompson. And so the Nuggets gave Thompson like a huge offer. And so they were able to get him. Uh, and also uh, the Nuggets also lost Marvin Webster in that same draft. So the, or excuse me, the Hawks. So the Hawks had the number one and number three, if I remember right, number one and number three picks in the 1975 NBA draft. They drafted Thompson and Marvin Webster, and both of those draft picks went with the different Nuggets in the ABA. So the Hawks got absolutely nothing out of the 75 draft, <laughs> even though they have the one and three picks. So you can see how um, having a, a kind of a free agent style system might, you know, might not be great for a team if you're locked in to like, to like this rigid system. Because the Nuggets um, – you know, theoretically speaking, like the Nuggets or the NBA had a more free system. The Nuggets could have been like, well, crap, we missed out on Thompson and Marvin Webster. Let's go try to sign somebody else uh, that another team drafted. Uh, but, yeah, that's how the system worked back then. The Nuggets uh, took advantage of it to the fullest. So when when the ABA and NBA merged, was that the last time that draftees really had any leverage whatsoever? Yeah, that's um, – yeah, I mean, besides holding out, that that's pretty much the end of it. Uh, so you had examples like uh, Kiki Vandeweghe, I think in 1980 or 81. Uh, he was drafted by the Dallas Mavericks, but didn't want to play for the Mavericks. Uh, he held out, but he didn't sign with anybody. Like he, He's like, I'm just not going to play basketball. So the, the Mavericks eventually traded him to the different Nuggets. Um, so you had you know, the holdout stuff, but yeah, there, there was no David Thompson or Dolph Shea situation where they, they were able to sign with the team and start playing immediately. Uh, in pro basketball, they would have to hold out for several weeks or months to get the get the contract that they wanted, or just get traded. Yeah, I mean, nowadays we we see guys trying to exert leverage like that. With, I mean, I think the most uh, prevalent example would be withholding medicals. So, uh, mm-hmm. I don't know, like Ben. I think Chris Dunn uh, was not revealing his medicals to teams he didn't want to be drafted by back in the 2016 draft. Um, I know. Uh, I, I poor like Porzingis wouldn't wouldn't go and do medicals with teams he didn't want to be drafted by. I think notably Philly. Uh, so like we see little plays at, at to attempts to to exert leverage. International players will sometimes threaten to to stay abroad. Uh, I know people were a little concerned about that with Luca, but like not really. But you know there there are all these attempts that are there. You know there's not really a lot of teeth behind them. There's no there's no competing league that you can go sign with, and it really puts these guys in a rough position because it's it is take it or leave it. Yeah, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you did bring up the Euro League because uh, that that is, I guess, now the most comparable example to what was going on with the ABA uh, back in the '70s. Uh, yeah, like obviously American players can't do that. 
Uh, well, I guess they can, but it's, like, it's not really going to happen. So, yeah, European players have a little bit more leverage. They could be like, yeah, I'm, I'm not going to come over, so don't, dra- don't draft me. I'll stay over here for three or four years and play out my contract with this, with this European team. Yeah, I mean, the American players conceivably could. Yeah. Like, you, obviously, you see high school players go for a year. Uh, you see fringier guys, certainly, that will go and play abroad. Um, we've seen a lot of that this year, guys guys going and signing abroad so that they can be um, actually more attractive draft options because they, will, they'll, uh, they won't take up uh, roster spots. But yeah, it's, it's really a position these days where there is not a lot of leverage. There's not going to be a competing league on, on the scale of, say, the NBA to the or the ABA to the NBA back in the 60s and 70s because the NBA is too big. Yeah. Like no, no one is gonna is going to reach that level. Um, so these guys are kind of in a lot of trouble uh, when it comes to securing salaries uh, that represent their actual worth. Um, so like, has it basically? So I mean, initially, you said that the draft wasn't really put into place. Uh, to suppress salaries but like at what point did it become kind of just like a thing that the players union does that the concession that they're willing to make is to um sacrifice the earnings of these young guys who are not yet in the union like when did that become like a you know commonplace thing yeah so so it's very important like yeah the the draft uh specifically wasn't instituted to suppress salary but it was part of a larger system that did suppress salaries because like like i mentioned like you were tethered to that team once they drafted you so you really couldn't negotiate a really fair salary i would say uh going forward uh but after the the players union uh got their victory in uh, 1976 to have uh free agency established within the nba and that's also really important uh because the nba and aba I mean, they kind of realized pretty quick, like, all right, we, we can't, at least the owners thought this, like, we can't go on with these escalating salaries by 1970. So they actually agreed to merge in 1970. But the uh, player, the NBA Players Union, uh, uh, under Oscar Robertson, they sued in 1970 to block that merger because they argued in court, like, hey, if they do merge, that that's a monopoly. And so we can't fairly uh, negotiate for our, our labor, the value of our labor. And the court system agreed, and the courts were like, all right, NBA, you can't merge until you guys come to an agreement with the players union. And so some of the players at that point uh, didn't want to abolish the draft as part of the negotiations in the 1970s, uh, but they backed off uh, on that front. Uh, so they came to an agreement in 76 saying that um, they will institute over a 12, 13 year period, full free agency in the NBA. So it actually took a while. So you had restricted free, I mean, you still have restricted free agency now. That's like the last vestige of the reserve clause in the NBA. Uh, but you had restricted free agency, uh, like veteran free agency. Uh, so whenever a player signed somewhere, they got compensation. Uh, the old team did. So probably the most famous example of that is Moses Malone. Uh, when he signed, uh, yeah, when he left the Houston Rockets for the Philadelphia 76ers, the Sixers had to send uh, compensation back to the Rockets as part of that. Uh, same thing with Bill Walton when he went from the Blazers uh, to the Clippers. Um, but yeah, by the 90s, you had the full free agency going on. And they also obviously had gotten rid of the four-year college rule by that point, too. I mean, that was long gone. Uh, but you had situations where you had guys like uh, Chris Webber, uh, comes to mind immediately, uh, also Glenn Robinson, who were able to negotiate these huge salaries, or at least uh, uh, parts in the salaries. Like Chris Webber didn't just have a big salary. He had an opt-out clause after one year in his salary. So he's like, after one year, I can leave. And that's what he did because he hated Don Nelson. Uh, 
But then the other hand, y'all say, like I said, Glenn Robinson, who just negotiated just a flat out huge contract, even if he didn't have an opt out after one year. And the owners were like, okay, we can't keep giving out these huge bucks to these guys who are not proven. That was their argument. These guys that aren't proven, although Weber and Robinson were pretty good players. Um, so they're probably worth the money. Maybe not that much money, but they were worth the money, you would say, overall. Um, so the owners used that as you know one of the reasons why they locked out the players. Uh, they actually locked them out, I think, in 95. Uh, didn't mean uh, They didn't lose any games. That was part of the lockout in 1995. Then, of course, the one in 99, or 98 and 99, that cost some games. Uh, those are some of the big sticking points was trying to control rookie salaries. And obviously they, they succeeded. They got in the rookie salary scale uh, that we know of nowadays. Uh, and also with the collective bargaining agreement, they were able to block uh, eventually um, the entry of high school players. What was it? Like 2006. Uh, they blocked. Uh, uh, it, the last one with high school players, I believe is Oh four with Dwight. Okay. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think yeah, sometime in the mid-2000s. high school players. Weird how the closer yeah. it gets to now, I, I get worse on the facts. Um, <laughs> like 1960, I got it. 2010, I'm not so sure. Uh, but yeah, no. Um, but yeah, it's weird how you had, uh, yeah, like the the players agreeing to. Well, uh, I, I was, they were kind of bludgeoned into accepting the rookie salary cap, but they did willfully agree to the, uh, the, the limit on high school players coming into the draft, which does not apply to European players, which is an interesting uh side discussion that i think is kind of unfair that americans uh have to wait one year after high school but european players can join when they're 18 years old right into the uh, european players ha- have to be 19 by the okay. yeah so they have to be 19 by december 31st of like that the start of that league year um but they don't have to be a year removed from high school yeah. the high school players do have the added stipulation that they have to be a year removed from high okay school. all right so- um but there are lots of workarounds to that because you, you can like argue that, that essentially like your, your final year of high school was a post-grad year and there are, there are lots of workarounds, but you do have to be this, this the age requirements. Okay. All right. Good. I, I feel better um, about that. I think, see, that's, thank you. Thank you. I told you before, <laughs> like I'm not bad at more recent draft history, but uh, good to know they, they, even though you said there's workarounds, at least they have some, some equity in that. Yeah. So, so the scale being imposed in the early, in the or I get late nineties, early two thousands, like how big of a bargaining chip was that? Cause I feel like that would have to be a pretty huge concession for the players union to make. Yeah. And that, that that's why they lost games. Like it was, I uh, also got to remember this came along with the, uh, the Kevin Garnett contract too. So that wasn't strictly a rookie deal, but like that's his first contract. I think he signed it uh, after his second NBA season where he signed his huge contract. Yeah. That, that like makes modern contracts look yeah. small. Yeah. So it was that, that's that kind of stuff. So it wasn't even just like, the, Robert, the Glenn Robinson and uh, Chris Webber deals, but also KG's deal after his, I believe, second season in the NBA. That was just such an enormous contract. The, the owners were like, we got to get away to, you know, to control these players, uh, definitely for their rookie contracts, so at least their first three or four years. But now even, you know, we've seen with the more recent CBAs, it really puts them under control, like almost really their first seven years in the NBA. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's for, if you're if you're a like star player, there's no chance you can leave in the first eight years, like because you're just you're just gonna get a five year max on that second contract, and yeah, you're you're stuck for eight years. Like you could probably agitate to get out maybe with two years left on that second deal, but yeah, it's 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 yeah, which is why like we we try to focus a lot on putting the onus on teams to understand the type of player that they're drafting to put them in a position to succeed. Cause it really isn't on the players. Like a, a player more or less is who he is and has the abilities that he has, 
but it's it's on team teams are the ones in a position of extreme power like they, they have to get this right and then enable that player to succeed i mean yeah, yeah it's uh you know I, th- I always think of like um you know kwame brown uh when he was number one pick uh, obviously out of high school uh you know people say like hey, he's a bus i'm like well whatever you want to call him a bus call him a bus but like you know what does it mean to be a bus let's get into that and it's like, should he have been drafted number one overall in the first place? Maybe, maybe not. I don't definitely don't think the Wizards did him any favors in how they, uh, you know, developed his skills. Uh, and then when we saw it later on in his career, he became a serviceable, um, sometimes starter, backup big man. So, you know, kind of a, a flex flexer in that, that situation uh, with the Lakers. But it's like, you know, what if he had that kind of um, that, that kind of treatment beginning the, toward the beginning of his career? Yeah, so if you, uh, if you think of like Kwame Brown, like what he, what he went through with the Wizards, uh, they they drafted him number one. You know, again, like if people want to call him a bus, think about what it means to be a bus, because uh, like he didn't draft himself number one. That wasn't his choice. Uh, he didn't he didn't choose to have the Wizards development staff not really give him good time to develop. Um, and but so he he turned out eventually to be like a decent uh, power forward center in the NBA. Maybe not a starter caliber on a playoff team, but you know I think he would have been a good backup. Well, maybe not good, but serviceable backup. Uh, so he was, he was, bottom line, he was an NBA player, uh, but he shouldn't have been drafted number one, maybe in retrospect. But uh, I do think it means a lot, though, for teams to to really do their homework as to whether the player they're drafting, you know, obviously, A, has the talent worthy of that draft spot and the investment of those resources that come with it now, since, like, you have to pay them a certain amount under the rookie scale. Uh, you can negotiate a certain amount. Um, and also, like, do you have the development staff to actually make the best of that player? Uh, and, and actually uh, not just, uh, I guess, amplify the skills they already have, but actually uh, uh, add to the skills, uh, add to their skill set going forward, uh, which I think if we had like a, a free agent system with uh, rookies joining the NBA, the players would be at a better position to actually judge that for themselves. Like, you know, the teams would have to sell that to them. Um, so like, <laughs> you know, hey, Kwame, just to stick with Kwame, because uh, – He's got an unfair rap over the years, I think. Uh, but what if Kwame had been able to go around the NBA and be like, hey, you know, these are my skills. This is what I think I'm good at. This is what I want to improve on. How can your organization help me with that? In addition to the salary negotiation. So we make it more about skill acquisition, uh, best fit for that player. He can judge that for himself, hopefully, uh, in addition to the money. Uh, whereas the draft is just simply the organization thinking, oh, yeah, this guy's a he's a shoe. We, we, we know what to do with him. Uh, then when things go bad, the player gets, you know, a lot to blame for it uh, unfairly. Yeah, and we talk about you know, this concept a lot in terms of fit and development. You know, even this year with a guy like Tyrese Halliburton, we've talked about it. But rarely we, you know, think about this concept from a, a human lens as it's more than just, you know, these players are, you know, these players and statistics are, are being put in a, an unoptimal fit that it, it's really truly like unfair to a player and it really shows how, how how little leverage they have because I mean like you said Curtis like a lot of these busts have you know been put in a situation where they can't succeed or have been you know put in uh, an adverse situation to succeed and that's just not bad for you know the, the team that drafted them or for their statistics or for their trade value but it's you know unfair to them as as humans and for their leverage as you know as individuals looking for salary negotiations in the future and you know and looking for future work um so yeah i mean having competent development and a co- competent evaluative staff for for a team is more than just like finding good players it's like a it, 
it's it's a genuine service to these you know these teenagers or 20 20 21 year olds who have been working their whole lives to to play basketball you know make yeah, sure they like, can like you know, make the oh, best ahead, of it. So that, yeah. I think it's a, that's a really important oh, sorry yeah just um and then another thing dude that you're mentioning is also um the not just the basketball fit but also the um where you want to live, like just simply like, do I want to live in this place? Um, how far away do I want to live from home? That, that should be a factor with some of these guys. I mean, that was a huge thing back in the sixties and seventies. Uh, some of these guys, like a uh, good example, like uh, this isn't the draft related, this is more free agency, but uh, like uh, I've spoken with uh, Bob Dandridge who played for the Milwaukee Bucks and the Washington Bullets back in the seventies. And uh, you know, a huge reason for him that he signed with the Bullets uh, as a restricted free agent was that he was from Richmond, Virginia. Uh, played college at Norfolk State uh, in Virginia, and the Bullets were the closest team to home. So he's like, gave me a good chance to win a title, which he did. But he's also like, it was also really close to home. So uh, he was, he said like, yeah, I didn't hate Milwaukee, but I was tired of, you know, living that far away from home. Like that's the longest. Like he has spent maybe I think seven or eight years with the Bucks, and that's the longest he'd ever been out of Virginia. So he was like, I just want to go basically just go back home and play basketball at home. Uh, so you imagine that's got to be a feeling too for you know rookies, especially you know young guys. You know, who clearly want to see the world, but also, you know, you want to get away from home as a young person, but also you don't want to be, you know, completely cut off from home, I imagine, uh, which is what happens a lot of times when you get drafted in certain situations. Yeah, I mean, that's still relevant today. Like, I think it's fairly well known that Markel Fultz would prefer to play on the West Coast. Uh, it's what he, you know, he went from from DMV area to, to Washington uh, to play college ball. And I think that it, it's pretty known that he wanted to be on the West Coast because he's a guy who kind of wanted to get away from 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 his roots um and that didn't happen and and of course like like it's hard to to attribute the uh issues that he ended up having entirely to something like that but you know be be feeling like secure and comfortable and and like content with where you are is something that matters a lot and it's something that drafted players have no control over whatsoever on top of the basketball fit like you know it I don't know that Tyrese Halliburton is is necessarily like perfectly self aware, but in, in a case where where he is and he knows that he want he should be a, alongside a strong lead guard, like one would think that he would prioritize going to a place that has that in place. Like he 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 wouldn't be going to Detroit to go have you know twenty five percent usage uh, and run however many pick and rolls a game. Like he, he wouldn't choose to do that. Like he wouldn't he would put himself in a position to succeed. So it's just it's something to like. The draft, I think, inevitably is viewed through a team lens in a way that produces a lot of issues that we will talk about later in in, in the way in which players are kind of dehumanized and and uh, reduced to assets. Um, but it also, you know, the onus has to be put on the teams to get this right and to put players in positions to succeed and not blame players when they fail on account of something that's not their fault. Um, because it really, it really is on teams because they're yeah, yeah. the ones in a position of power. Sorry, dude. Trying to, uh, uh, I was like, think of a go good ahead. point. No, this gets the, the team building aspect. Because um, I was thinking of uh, like the current draft system. Obviously, even though you have the lottery, it still puts the worst teams in a position to get the best pick. Uh, and I just think it's weird that you're in the business of you know putting the most talented player into conceivably like the worst run organization in the NBA. Like, how is that? conducive to you know making you know the best product possible with the league um so it's like maybe it'd be better if teams that are just that are poorly run just like maybe they run themselves better if they realize they do have to 
you know, spruce up the operations. Like you can't just sit there and be like, ah, oh, well, you know, we'll get the number one pick and that guy come in and save us. <laughs> it's like maybe if you invest in, you know, the the, the coaching staff, the development staff, the, the uh, video staff, the, uh, uh, the tra- uh, weight training and all that, uh, that you get like a, a better mentality on how to build a better team instead of just like relying on, oh, we'll get them one or t- number one or number two pick and that guy just come in and save us. Because like, you know, sometimes that'll work. Sometimes you get a LeBron James, but we saw even that has his limits and LeBron had to leave and come back and like he had to go to Miami to see how, like how real organizations run said so the Cleveland Cavaliers uh he came back was like all right guys like if I'm coming back things are gonna have to change around here uh, not that LeBron <laughs> runs things perfectly but he realized things weren't being run you know up, up to snuff in, the, in uh, the Cavaliers organization um so yeah I, I'm, I'm more a fan of incentivizing people to try to run things as well as they can instead of them well, trying to go, bank going on luck. forward I think it'll be fascinating to see how much players try to exert leverage in situations like that um, with really ev- evaluating organizations in that sense. Because obviously, like we talked about the withholding medicals, that is a, a relevant example. But, you know, like what if prospects start to say that they don't want to play for the Magic because they don't feel comfortable playing for the DeVos family? Like, I think that that's something that con- mm. could conceivably happen. Uh, and ob- free agents obviously obviously will have the choice to just not go there if they don't want to. But if I, I mean, could we see Magic uh, draftees refusing to sign with the team? If you know, I, it's definitely conceivable. The p- players seem to be really realizing how powerful they are and how you know they are the the league here. Um, they seem to be realizing that. So I'm I'm fascinated to see how that involves how, how that evolves, uh, especially in the draft f- front because. As far as players go, they're the least empowered uh, in the NBA for sure. Um, so we've we've kind of danced around the age uh, thing here, but I, I it's a really important aspect of the draft that I think we should discuss. So, do you want to just give us an overview of the history of the four year rule and then how that was struck down in uh, Haywood v, v NBA? Yeah. So the yeah, going back to the NBA's old ancestral leagues, uh, you did find, particularly in the NBL, because the NBL was the older one of them, uh, and really, honestly, they, they were just the more fun of the two leagues. Uh, they, like, they, they just have a lot more fun stories. Uh, but the NBL, they had guys coming straight out of high school, playing in their league, um, guys that dropped out of college. Uh, obviously, the, the BAA had that a little bit, too. Uh, but the BAA was much more like, <laughs> yeah, we want guys that went to college four years and uh, so the NBA took that up uh, from them. And I don't know where that really comes from, like the, the four-year rule. Like, uh, I know they instituted it, obviously, but, like, I don't know what their uh, the underlying mentality. I have not seen, like, a specific statement as to why they did that. Uh, but I think we can assume that it's because they wanted to obviously make nice with the with the colleges. Uh, you don't want to be seen as, you know, poaching uh, players out of the colleges like that. Um but also to a degree, it also lent them like a uh, credibility because uh, you have like a, after four years, this guy's an established R. Uh, he's, a, you know, he's a, he's a name uh, within the sport so you can get him. And also to some degree, he's kind of proved, has a proven value. Although you never know when someone, until someone gets to the pros, how they're going to perform. But after four years in college, you have an idea as to how, how they're going to do. Um, but the subversion of that within the NBA kind of started with um, the Philadelphia Warriors when uh, Eddie Gottlieb, who was the owner and general manager of the team, uh, used his territorial pick on Wilt Chamberlain in, I think it was 1956, the year Wilt graduated high school. 
because Eddie kind of looked at the rules of the territorial draft and they said like, you know, you can pick somebody within your, you know, within like things within like a hundred miles of your city. Um, and Eddie was just like, well, what if I draft Will Chamberlain now? I'll wait the four years <laughs> to have him play for the team. Like he's worth waiting four years for. Because, uh, yeah, honestly, Will could have played straight out of high school into the NBA, but Eddie Gottlieb's like, yeah, I'll wait four years. So the NBA had to kind of wrap up that loophole, be like, okay, you have to actually wait until the guy is not just four years removed from high school. He actually have to have, you know, graduated college and be eligible for that specific year. Um, so that was kind of like the clever subversion, but that really didn't amount to much. That was like a one, one-off deal. Um, but no one really challenged the rule until Spencer Haywood. Uh, like a player really coming in and saying like, you know, this makes no sense. Uh, so he started with the, um, God, he, he was just so unique in a lot of ways. Cause he started playing um, basketball in Mississippi. Uh, then he moved to uh, Michigan, if I remember right, uh, which is where one of his brothers lived. Uh, so he went up there as a teenager, uh, finished high school up there. Um, <laughs> was playing at a community college. I think he went to, yeah, I should have studied Spencer Haywood a little bit more. Uh, so he went to a community college in Colorado, if I remember correctly. And so from there, he got an invitation to play on the 1968 Olympic team because the uh, players were boycotting those Olympics, most notably uh, Kareem. Uh, and so they're like, hey, we'll take a chance on this guy, this Juco. And uh, Spencer Haywood goes on to lead the team to the gold medal to everybody's surprise. And uh, he, he, he set like the, the scoring record for uh, an American player at an international competition until Kevin Durant broke it at the FIBA tournament, like in 2010. Uh, so then like the mainstream colleges are like, well, hell, we got to get on this dude. So um, I think it was uh, Detroit Mercy College, got him out of the JUCO situation in Colorado. Uh, but then Spencer was like, well, my family back in Mississippi is still broke. Like his mom lived, uh, she basically lived on a cotton plantation working as sharecroppers. Uh, so Spencer decided, you know, I'm not going to stay in college for the rest of this time. Like he played one year at the, at the, uh, the main college and joined the ABA. And of course the ABA being a renegade league is like, you know, we don't need these stupid four year rules. We need the best players we can get now. So they got, you know, Connie Hawkins, who was blackballed by the NBA. Uh, Doug Moe was also blackballed. They signed them. Uh, they signed Spencer Haywood. They're like, we don't care if you didn't finish college, you can ball. So Spencer joins the Denver Rockets at that point who become the Denver Nuggets later on. Uh, but he joins the Denver Rockets, plays one year with them, is MVP and Rookie of the Year with the ABA. Uh, he averaged like 30 and 20 his one year with the Denver Rockets. And so the Seattle Supersonics, they kind of started thinking like, well, does this really stand muster that you have to wait four years to get somebody? So the Sonics signed Spencer Haywood away from the Denver Rockets, and from the ABA to the NBA. And so he had the really convoluted court battle where the Denver Rockets were like, the Sonics can't sign him because he's under contract with us. Then you have the Sonics and the NBA in the legal fight because the NBA is like, you can't sign him because he's not eligible because he hasn't, he's not four years removed from high school. And Spencer Haywood is suing the NBA directly saying like, your rule is, you know, illegal to begin with. I mean, not even just like uh, within the rules of the league, but like illegal, but under U.S. law that you depart depriving somebody uh, the right to make use of their, their labor skills to make money. So he sues. He went. He wins his lawsuit. Uh, the Sonics won their injunctions against the NBA. Um, uh, the, the Denver Rockets they, they they lost their court battle too. So um, like it's a weird three way court battle that went on. Uh, but the bottom line is the courts were like, yeah, the NBA has no legal justification 
to, to stand on, to deprive people to right, uh, to labor in professional basketball, especially since you only had the NBA and the ABA really to make your money as a pro ball player. Um, so maybe in a more diverse labor market, like I guess with teaching, uh, you could be like, well, if we have these reasons, but like if you don't want to teach for us, there's a million other schools to go teach at. Professional basketball, there's only so many spots. So you, you're, um, your standard is higher as to why you have to deprive somebody uh, the right to work in that league since there's only so many spots, as I mentioned. And so that's in, in what, 72? Uh, 1970 and 72. 71. Um, yeah, and 72 is when it's finally resolved. Um, yeah, so it, it was like a year of court battling. But it was finally resolved in, yeah, 72, I believe. So then for, for more than 30 years, there's no – I mean, there's just the, the 18 age requirement – so then in, in the, you know, mid 2000s, uh, well, well, actually, oh, let me uh, amend that because uh, the, the court decision did say like the NBA doesn't have a good leg to stand on to deprive people, mm-hmm. but they made like some st- uh, stopgap. Mm-hmm. Basically, they want to give the NBA some like some breathing room to actually come up with a legit, I mean, courts like to do this, where it's like, we don't want to just completely shut down what you're doing. We're going to try to give you a way out. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they created what was called the hardship uh, situation where, if you could demonstrate economic hardship, you'd be allowed to join the draft early. So the NBA and ABA have, that's what the ABA came up with. They're just like, uh, our excuse is that these guys are under economic hardship. So the court basically gave the NBA a chance to uh, implement that rule in the NBA. The NBA did so. Uh, but yeah, eventually the NBA got rid of the age rule uh, by the mid seventies. And so that's when you had um, Daryl Dawkins go straight from high school uh, and also, um, I never can't remember the guy's first name, but there's uh this guy, his last name was Willoughby. He was another high school player that joined the NBA in the mid seventies. Yeah, I, uh, I know who you're talking. Is it? It's like Bill or something. I, I don't remember. I think but... it, yeah, I think it is Bill Willoughby. Uh, yeah. I know he played. They're playing for the Houston Rockets, but yeah, they uh they joined straight from high school to the NBA, so they kind of get forgotten. Obviously, just Moses Malone too, who are, who went from high school to the ABA. Mm-hmm. So, can you explain to us what happens then in? Uh, I think I think we said it was oh four oh five. Yeah. Uh, can you explain to us what happens then with the addition of a, of a new age rule? Yeah, so the Haywood case, you know, in essence, if not directly says, you know, it's illegal to bar these guys from joining the draft uh, once they're 18 years old. They're a legal age to uh, play pro basketball or, you know, to engage in any labor market uh, whatsoever. Uh, you can implement those rules if there's a collective bargaining agreement. So if you have a recognized labor union, and the union negotiates with the with uh, with the ownership, and they agree under these under these rules, then it, it is legal under under our under under U.S. law. So uh, that's how in 0405 they were able to implement. Uh, you got to have one year, uh, be one year removed from high school to enter the draft. Uh, which um, I can understand the arguments, like kind of the practical arguments, like that you want guys to be more uh, physically and emotionally ready uh, to you know to, to engage in pro basketball. But I don't like the the solution they came up with, like, you know, got to be one year out of high school, uh, which basically uh, shuttles them to uh, or shunts them off to um, the college basketball for, with the one and done stuff. That's just a farce for everybody involved. Um, so now we got the G League. I think that's better, you know, let the guys play in the G League, have some professional experience before they go into the NBA draft. Uh, but obviously it looks like they're just going to get rid of that rule uh, with the next collective bargaining agreement once they open that up. 
Yeah, and like you said, I mean, almost 15 years later, or about 15 years later, we're still seeing the ramifications of that rule. And especially now, like you mentioned with the G League, uh, so like more and more different pathways are, are opening up for, for players to bypass the, the NCAA um, and it's all of its issues for for amateur basketball players, um, you know, past you, you see more players taking the overseas route, like 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 Lamelo Ball, Archer Hampton. Uh, you know, next year we'll hopefully maybe have the, the G League Select program open up, uh, which is just a, another avenue for these young players. Um, again, under the, under the total control of the NBA, which presents its own separate issues, but still a, an avenue to avoid the NBA. Um, yeah, I'm like I said with the, with the next CBA, there it's likely gonna change the you know, potentially change the one and done rule, but you know, there's so there's different avenues still, but still, I mean, there's less player autonomy than there was, you know, two decades ago for these guys coming straight out of, out of high school. Yeah. I, I think, yeah. go ahead. Oh, sorry, go, go ahead. Well, I, I think you mentioned the, the practicality concern with um, just with the back when they had the four year rule of uh, you know, there's the practicality aspect of just like getting guys physically developed. Like you're, you're just, you know, you're seeing them further along the development arc. Uh, and that just, you know, is going to going to necessarily mean more certainty, even if you can never have a hundred percent certainty in projection. However, like, I, I think like back then there was a huge practicality concern of you, like how there's no way to see these guys. Like there's, a, there's no way to see these guys from all over the country playing at uh, wildly varying uh, degrees of competition. And of course, like, I mean, talking way back, none of this would have been documented on video. So I, I, I really like, I'm kind of sympathetic to the practicality argument back then. And even like nowadays, the standardization of competition is not entirely there. Like it's, it's there for, for some of the shoe circuits, but that, you know, you, you the last time you're playing that is, is would be a year removed from the draft. If you were, if you were going prep to pro, um, so it's not exactly the most recent information. And on the high school level, there's, there are of course, uh, you know, prep schools who play against other strong prep schools, but there, there are big time prospects who don't take that route, who play uh, at a much lower competition level. So there is a practicality aspect to it, but there's also a lot of let's stay in the good graces of the NCAA. And, uh, yeah. you know, there, 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 there's a lot of other stuff going on there, but I like, I do think there is there is some practicality to it. However, like it, it's obviously something that that needs to go away, and I'm excited for it to go away. But uh, but th I think there is something to be said for the practicality of it. Yeah. No, no, I, I think it's part of a, a you know a, a host of issues uh, to kind of keep in mind. Like it's not just any one thing. I mean, we talk about this like this this a a multitude of of factors to, to think about. But I think the overriding one, the place basically the place where we ought to start with is. Uh, these players, uh, these people should have a right to play in the league, you know, starting at age 18. So everything else needs to be kind of retrofitted uh, along to toward, toward that principle. So, yes, we have those practicality concerns, but try to implement those concerns or uh, try to address those concerns with the idea of how can we best do it in a way that's going to allow these 18-year-olds to uh, fulfill their, their ability, their hopeful ability to play in the NBA and not force them to go to college uh, for one year if they don't want to, uh, especially under the current NCAA system, which is, again, as, as we all know, is pretty ridiculous. Yeah, and talking, I mean, strictly about development in, you know, modern, you know, in the year 2020 in modern times, I think it, I, like we've talked about how, you know, I, many of us would trust these players in an NBA development staff over, you know, their, their college development staff. 
you know, in some schools and even even overseas. So, you know, talking about practicality and, you know, not being ready for the physicality of the league. Sure, these, these straight out of high school players might not be ready to play, but, you know, being with an NBA physio staff gives them the chance to develop to the point where they are ready to play much quicker and more efficiently and all around better than they could if they weren't allowed to, you know, develop with an NBA team from an earlier age. Yeah. And, uh, and I'll, I'll, something I decide about now, like uh, with college, is almost like a plateau of competition, too, if you actually stayed all four years. Because it's like, you know, pretty much the same amount of games every year, like about 30 games every year. That's not really going to get you ramped up for uh, NBA travel and, um, and number of games. So like, you know, high school. Well, uh, it's been a while since I've been in high school. But uh, high school basketball, uh, <laughs> you know, that's not that many games a year. Uh, it's de- definitely less than 30. Uh, if, you're, if you're only just doing like, you know, public high school. I don't know about these other kind of circuits they got going on. Um, actually, I guess a whole other issue of them kind of overworking players and stressing out their their joints and ligaments and all that. Uh, but yeah, I, I would hope going forward that we eventually get a system that is able to allow 18 year olds to play some form of pro basketball, maybe for a year or two to get you ready for the NBA. That kind of ramps up your body to be able to take on the 80 80 game a year grind and all the airplane travel, uh, but also introduces you to actually. Um, taking care of your finances uh, and all the other stuff that goes along with being professional. Cause you know, it's kind of everybody when they go from 18 to actually having like a real job struggles with, you know, how, how to spend their money, how to save their money and all that kind of stuff. So it ain't just NBA players, it's everybody uh, in society. Yeah. And, and we're seeing the NBA lay the foundation for that, obviously mm-hmm. with the G league select program, because they know this is coming. They know that one and done is going away uh, and that they're going to have to have some infrastructure in place to introduce 18 year olds into the NBA in a much healthier way than was done in the late nineties and early two thousands when they really weren't prepared for it uh, and didn't handle it particularly well. Uh, I, I, th- I think they will be better prepared this time. Uh, but I, I, I mean, it, it's a tough task. It's definitely a tough task because pawning, pawning a year off of development, a year of development off to college programs uh, was really easy. It was a really easy uh, like repeatable process. Uh, and now the NBA has to come up with something entirely new. Uh, and I'm curious, certainly curious to see what they end up doing. As sports keep coming back, so does your chance to bet on them with our exclusive wagering partner, betonline.ag. Major League Baseball will soon be in full swing and there are no shortage of ways to get in on the action. BetOnline has all the odds, futures, and props for you to bet on. Also, tune in as Floyd Money Mayweather joins the BetOnline team in a new segment called The Ice is Right, where he talks about his expansive jewelry collection. He'll give you the chance to win some great prizes and bet on the cost of his bling. Visit betonline.ag to check out all the odds and up-to-date sports news. Don't forget to sign up and take advantage of all the welcome back sports bonuses. Bet online, your on your online wagering experts. 2020 has been the year of things happening that are completely out of your control. But there is one thing you can control, and that's shaving your bush. Our sponsors at Manscaped are here to remind you to do so. The Manscaped Lawnmower 3.0 is a premium electric trimmer that's designed to give you a confidence boost through body image. Their ceramic blade and skin-safe technology are designed to reduce nicks or tugs on your fellas down low. The Lawnmower 3.0 is also waterproof and comes with an LED light so you can manscape in the shower, in the dark, or in a dark shower, whatever floats your boat. They also just released their Shears 2.0 nail kit, which is the perfect add-on to their Lawnmower 3.0 trimmer. In fact, listeners of this show will get 20% off plus free shipping with the code armchair at manscaped.com. 
That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com and use code armchair. It's time to grab 2020 by the horns by shaving that front trunk. Um, with that, I guess we should move on to the role that race has played in the NBA draft. Um, so I guess the the first three or yeah first three years of I guess BAA drafts uh, there were no black players selected. So like what were the because there was there was no explicit rule preventing that. What what were the like pressures socially within the league preventing teams from doing that? See th- this is why I told you that the NBL is so much more fun than the BAA. Uh, <laughs> Not that white people aren't fun. It's just that the BAA was like they they, they only had one non-white player. So they had uh, Wat Masaka, who was Japanese American. Uh, he he played three whole games for the New York Knicks uh, in 1947. So he was the, and he was drafted by the Knicks, obviously. Uh, but he he was the only non-white player for those three years of the B, of the BAA. Uh, the NBL, what kind of like I said, have the, the murky draft history, but. Comes along with some fun, though, like I said. So, like, in uh, 1942, uh, they had two teams in the NBL that actually had black players. Uh, one of them was majority black, actually. Uh, the Chicago Studebakers. How's that for a team name? Try, try to guess who the sponsor was of that team. Um, <laughs> but actually, they were actually sponsored by the United Auto Workers. So this is actually a really fun labor history story, too. So the United Auto Workers um, obviously worked at the Studebaker plant in Chicago. Uh, some of their guys worked at the factory, but also played for this basketball team. So they're like, we'll be, we'll be the Studebakers. And like, uh, if I remember right, seven of their players were black, and I think four were white. So it's actually majority black team. Uh, and then in 1948, they actually had an all-black team in the NBL, uh, the Dayton Wrens. Um, so like the BAA can't be like, oh, you know, that's just how things were back then. It's like, nah, other leagues have black players. Uh, so you guys just didn't want to have any black people in the league, uh, whether you wrote it down or not, like the proof is in the pudding, like there was no black players on the court. Uh, so when the two leagues merged in 1949, uh, the NBA did begin all white still, they didn't allow any black players in. Um, and Again, yeah, yeah not, not, not explicit, but it was, I guess they were like, since we're, we now have the NBA, we're new, we're these two old leagues coming together, you know, let's play it safe. Let's just see how things work out. Let's see if we can survive one year. Yeah, play it safe. Uh, but the second season, uh, the 50-51 season, uh, that's when you do get the first four black players, uh, two of them by draft, and then two of them were signed as free agents. Uh, so, um Earl Lloyd and Chuck Cooper were the two ones that were drafted. And then you had uh, Sweetwater Clifton and Hank DeZoni. They were the ones that were signed because uh, they were they were veterans. They had been playing pro basketball for several years, both of them. Um, and Hank DeZoni actually played in the NBL. So uh, he was a vet of the NBL, wasn't allowed the NBA his first year, and then he got in the second year of the NBA. Um, but, yeah, there, there's nothing ever explicit written about these. They, they're, they're kind of smart enough to do that. But they're not going to be like, we do not allow black people. Uh, they're <laughs> They don't write that down. But over the years, or I should say through the 50s, um, they had an unspoken quota system as well. So where they wouldn't allow any more than initially one, then two, then maybe three black players per team. Uh, that, that, that quota system really didn't break down to the early 60s. So really for the first 12, 13 years of the NBA's history, 
uh, you had no black players to we're still going to have a quota on black players. And then finally, I think it was 60, 64 or 65 is when the Boston Celtics had an all-black starting lineup. And that finally was like you know, the last crack and, and people just stopped caring uh, about how many black players were on the team. Now they started worrying about how many white players do we have on the team. So they wanted to make sure they had enough white players to kind of keep fans placated. Again, this is their mindset, the owner's mindset, uh, because they, they they thought that fans wouldn't support a team that had too many black players. Um, so how that manifested in the draft is that obviously in 1950, there were no black players, uh, excuse me, 1949, there were no black players drafted. 1950 had two drafted. Um, and then throughout the years, there's just always very, very few black players drafted. But it was always the best black players drafted. They wouldn't take a chance on a black player uh, that wasn't going to be in the starting lineup. Because they figure, you know, we only got like, you know, 10 spots on the roster. We're not going to waste it on, you know, waste it uh, on somebody who's not going to be able to contribute. Absolutely. So it's not until the late 50s, early 60s, they started to take more chances on black players who would kind of be uh, bench or rotation players, not uh, star players on the on the team. That's like such an incredible, like cognitive dissonance of like you understand that you need like a, if a black player is good enough then you could justify having them on your team. But but if, yep. if they were just good, then they weren't worth a run. It's like... No, no, black, black players from that period talk about it. You know, they, they, didn't, they didn't begrudge their white teammates because they knew the white teammates weren't the source of this problem. They knew it was the ownership that was the source of the problem. The white teammate wasn't saying, yeah, keep me over the black guy. Like everybody says, keep me over the other player. Like everybody wants to play in the league. Uh, but the white players didn't hold a meeting and go to the owner saying, like, you guys got to put a put a cap on the black players. The white guys never did that. It was the ownership uh, putting that down. So, But the black, black players always talked about from that era, you know, we couldn't be as good as the white player. We had to be better to earn our spot because – but especially further down you go. Because, like, if you're you – know, if, you if you're Oscar Robertson and Jerry West, yeah, you're both going to make the league. No problem there. But if you get further down the list and you're, like, the ninth or tenth man on the roster – and it's between a white guy and a black guy, the owner's going to go with the white guy. Because, like I said, they're now trying to keep enough white players on the team because from their perception, uh, you got to have enough white players to keep the white fans satisfied. Uh, again, their perception wasn't necessarily the reality as to how fans, you know, would go, go to uh, go to the arena and watch the teams back then. So when did we – so when did you start to really see that, you know, that the, the perspective of the ownership trying to placate fans, you know, for – their ostensible desire to see more white players on on teams, the black players. When did when did we really start to see that shift in like the ownership stop caring about that? Um, some might say it never did completely go away. <laughs> um, I don't know. There's never. I don't know. I I can't put a fine uh, like a hard date on it, but obviously over time it, it, it dissipates, but I would say it's, it's never completely gone away. Like, I think that's still a factor. Um, it's just a bit more subconscious now. Yeah. I yeah. Like, I, I think that like, you know, Alex Caruso is, is a good player, but I think that like, you know, his, his um, cult fandom. Yeah. His yeah. cult, his celebrity is a source of him being a nerdy looking white guy. Like the, you know, it's, it's not explicitly, Oh, we need X number of white guys on the team, but like, wow, we're, you know, this, this nerdy looking white guy is going to develop this cult following in a way that 
doesn't really happen for black yeah players. yeah, yeah. It, it, it's an added bonus we'll say so like you're not gonna like i don't think any owner has a problem having an all-black team anymore uh but if a white player comes along and he is good i think the ownership would be like hey let's try to nab him because he is going to be unique uh to a to a degree uh you know especially if he's an american white player because like did you, I mean, just looking at the demographics, like, you know, the best white players now, you know, from overseas, uh, there's really no all-star caliber white player in the NBA, American white player anymore in the NBA, um, which is a whole fascinating other topic. You know, where have all the good white basketball players going in America? Uh, I, I think they're out there, at least, you know, the talent, but like you're probably going into other sports that are focusing on basketball. Um, but, but yeah, I think that suffices uh, to the, the uh, what, what's been happening over the last couple of decades, I would say no owner is opposed to having an all black team. Yeah. The Alice Caruso effect is like, yeah, if, if we can get a white guy that is good, it, it'll help with the bottom line. Cause they get that cult following. Um, I mean, you saw it with Matthew Del Vadova, although he's Australian, uh, but it's like, Hey, look, wow. Look, look how hard he plays. And like, he's all that boxing. Like we love Matt. And it's like, mm-hmm. black player doing the same thing. probably wouldn't engender that much love. Uh, but <laughs> Not to say he was bad, but it's like a black player wouldn't have got the same amount of love that he did uh, for doing the same thing. Yeah, it's a product of a different, you know, a, a similar but different type of, of stereotyping in regards to what people, you know, what owners and, you know, by extension, their fans will perceive about, you know, these white and, and black players and, you know, like their abilities at this point. Like like, like you mentioned about their the, the lack of american-born white stars uh in the league this in the league i mean there there is that level of you know the the ones that do pop like caruso or del vdova you know being different and you know garnering those 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 maybe somewhat you know fair but somewhat unjustified followings you know so how did we evolve though from like you know, there there is this this informal quota system. When do do like the demographics of the NBA really start to shift to become a, a black dominant league? Uh, it was the uh, mid and late sixties. Like by that point, I mean, it, it's, it's what I like. I'm, I'm writing about this in my dissertation. It's like almost what I call a controlled integration because like they, they didn't want to go from all black to all white, or excuse me, from all white to all black. Um, they want to try to control the flow. So like Magic's guys are like to spike it, you know, kind of trying to adjust like, eh, not too black. Let's just try to control it. But yeah, you know, they, they, they realize when I mean, you have like Will Chamberlain and Bill Russell and Oscar and um, Elgin Baylor all coming in, like it, it, it was in Sam Jones. Like it, it's quite evident that people, you, you couldn't have the best basketball league without having these players. So, uh, so once the, the once the all-star game became majority black, and that, that was, I think, 63 or 64 is when you finally had uh, black players become a majority, uh, or at least at parity with white players. And that kind of stayed through the early 70s, where you had a slight majority of black players in the All-Star game, but there's still a lot of white players in the game as well. Um, so you had kind of this period of equilibrium from the mid-60s through the mid-70s, but then by the late 70s and onward, like at the, the NBA is absolutely majority black. Uh, and there's, there's no going backwards. And again, I don't know why that is. Like, why just stop being so many good white players? Um, but yeah, that's what happened. And the owners realized, fans realized, like, yeah, we really can't have the best league without having these black players. Like, you can't deny them, even going into the bench roles now. Like, uh, you can't deny, like, say, um, I don't know, now I'm blanking on a good black bench player. John Johnson. Uh, you guys probably have no idea who he is, but John Johnson uh, played with the Seattle Supersonics in the late 70s. 
fantastic role player. It's like even guys like him is like, hey, you can't have a good league without guys like John Johnson. Even his name is so bland. But like he's um, <laughs> but like he he's a great role player. But like maybe 15 years earlier, you might have been like, eh, we don't need him. You know, by the late 70s, like yeah, we got to have him on the roster. Like we can't have a uh, a competitive team without him. So yeah, that, that I think that explains it. Like the blacker the other teams got, the better they got. So you had to kind of keep up with it. You couldn't you couldn't sacrifice your competitive nature. Uh, to the whims of trying to keep the team so white. Yeah, it does feel like it would be the logical conclusion of like, oh, we need to bring in the black stars in order to be good. And then, yeah, it turns out we should probably also have the other good black players yeah. that aren't necessarily the, the superstars, but, you know, they're good. They're better than, than you know, worse players that we've been employing otherwise. Um, that, that, that does make a lot of sense. I think that in the draft, the way that um, the – race manifests is pretty uncomfortable uh just because it's like the draft especially the way it's talked about is like pretty dehumanizing um and i i think that does fit into a a larger uh problem within the way that the nba is or really all sports are discussed in, in a really dehumanizing manner but things like the combine in particular like there are some really troubling uh, analogs to slavery. Uh, so, I mean, do you, you want to just, you know, expound on that a little bit? Because it, it's really there. Um, yeah. And it, yeah. I really hate it. it like in, in all sports, uh, the combines for a couple of big reasons. I mean, so firstly, it's just like, how does any of this show you how the guy actually performs in a game? It's like, how high can they jump? Like, how high is their raw jumps? Like, who cares? It doesn't show how high you're going to jump to get a rebound at, whether you can get a rebound anyways. Because some guys are like pogo sticks. Doesn't mean they can actually go out there and grab a rebound. Uh, other guys like Moses Malone, who couldn't even, you know, and Jack Sigma, both of them could barely jump over a phone book, but they were some of the greatest rebounders ever. So it's like, <laughs> it ain't just about how high you can jump. Um, so that's my one problem with the combine. It's just like, okay, I know you need some measurements, like how tall is he? Uh, like medical inspection. Like, okay, that makes sense. Um, you know, see how good the guy's knees are, especially they've been playing like the AAU ball for years. But yeah, like the whole like like let's strip them down to the underwear and <laughs> they have them jump shirtless and all. It's like, is this any of this necessary? Uh, especially the NFL, their combine is also pretty ridiculous. That's the worst one, I think. Uh, but yeah, I mean, so it, it's kind of debasing for everybody involved, like all the players, black, white, Latino, uh, anyone that's involved with it, but. Obviously, it takes on special resonance uh, for, for black players because, you know, in the United States, only black people have been, uh, you know, at large subjected to like that, that kind of inspection. Um, so like there's just no way around it. Like, you know, white people were never, you know, taken up to an auction block and like, you know, have people like inspect, you know, muscles, this, how old are they? Um, how many kids you think they can have? Like all, all these just really obviously uncomfortable stuff, uh, but that's how it went. And um, and actually have like values attached to them, like not just like how valuable is your labor, but like how valuable are you? Um, so uh, there's one thing that, that like like I, I studied, still study uh, slavery and um, what happened during that era. And in 1862, the U.S. Congress passed a law that uh, emancipated people in D.C., so all the enslaved people were freed. But the owners of those slaves got compensated because, you know, they're losing their property. So, like, 
They're like, okay, fine. You're losing your property. You're going to get up to, if I remember correctly, I think it was up to uh, $250 or $500. I forget which number, but whatever. It was like up to, let's just say, $250 uh, per lost piece of property per lost person. You know, boo-hoo, you lost your slave. Um, well, you had to go fill out a form. You got Basically, you got an appraisal. So it's like, how old was the slave? Were they male or female? What kind of work did they do? Um, I think I mentioned how old they were already. Uh, just like just what, what was their physical well-being like? Uh, so basically, how productive were they? And so the government would then issue issue you some money based on like how productive and how valuable that person was. So yeah, so for black people, uh, that that takes on special kind of disrespect when you have to go to these kind of combines when you think about uh, what your ancestors went through uh, with situations like that. And uh, the one I just talked about, at least you were getting freed at that point. Um, the other inspections that went on, that was because they were selling you to somebody else. Uh, so, um, yeah, the, the draft system just kind of, obviously not not as not as overtly and also not as nefariously, but it does kind of replicate what happened uh, all, all those decades and centuries uh, that, that we had slavery in this country. Uh, the the the, the, inspe the inspection uh, mentality, uh, you know, how tall are you? How big are you? How, how productive are you going to be? Uh, and, and, we're, and you're going to be forced to go somewhere. So it's not even like you get to choose where you go. I think that's the, the, the kind of the cherry on top of all that is even if you, know, you can kind of take it, maybe if they're inspecting you, uh, but you get to choose also like, you get to inspect them. Like, OK, what do you got to show me? Like, uh, what, what are your offices like? What can you do for me? Uh, like, You can inspect my knees. I can show you what I can do on the court. But again, what's your office like? What's all this going to be like? What, what do I get out of it? But instead, it's we're going to inspect you. And also, you got to go go someplace when you're drafted. You have no say in that matter. Uh, so, yeah, there, there's issues with it up and down, uh, which is why I personally would love to see the draft discarded. Uh, and I wish right now, but I hope over the, over subsequent years, the NBA is able to install uh, a different system of um, uh, of having rookies enter their league. Yeah, and just, I mean, the combine and draft evaluation in general breeds, I mean, kind of out of necessity during the current situation, like, like just this kind of troubling commodification of, of these players into, into just that, you know, commodities, you know, rather than, you know, rather than the humans they are. I mean, every draft analyst, you know, myself and Max included are, are guilty of this to some degree. Um, you know, these, you know, we kind of forget about the human the human side of these players the, especially these black players who who we are you know putting putting numbers on putting you know putting you know putting emphasis on the on, on their physical attributes um and, and you know again that that's just another example of you know, how these players are kind of lose their own leverage and lose their own individuality uh, in this system that's largely controlled by by owners and and rich largely white people um, you know, just and like you said, I mean, abolishing the draft, um, it would certainly be interesting for the league. Um, and I mean, with the, with the way the league is going, you know, hopefully in terms of increased player freedom um, and ability to, to exercise their the rights as, you know, like Max said earlier, they, they are the league and they are seem to be understanding that they they are the power players here. Um, and they they can make a really big change with with their you know refusal to to, to contribute their labor to this league. Um, could see a big shift at some point. Yeah, and I'm glad you brought up the glad you said the word commodities because uh, they're like yeah they, they, these players are being commodified and again the only people in America who've ever been commodified were black people uh, and also Native Americans to a certain degree because there are also Native American slaves uh, uh, back in the early colonial period too. Uh, but like just 
on mass, uh, like it was black people being commodified like that. Um, but then also the, the language that, come, that comes out of that is also really important because um, like we have owners. I know the NBA tries to clean it up now. It's like, we don't have owners anymore. We have governors. And I'm just like, no, like you, you can't just change the language, change the word and expect like the underlying uh, bedrock that it sits upon to change. Like these guys don't just govern the team. Like they, they sell the team at the end of the day. So like they own it. Um, but then also speaking of sell, like, I mean, like God, back in the day, like teams would sell players, like, like, um, I was even talking to a, a white player, uh, Dave Gamby. Uh, he played for the Syracuse nationals and the 76ers. And, uh, he said that they felt like basically felt like indigenous servitudes or indigenous servants, uh, back in the day. Um, and he was like, yeah, like it's like they, they could sell you at any moment. And he was right because like you had that reserve clause and you couldn't negotiate your salary uh, except for like once a year. But were you really negotiating when you only have to, you can only negotiate with one team and they can force you to play at your previous salary anyways, if they don't like what you're going for. Um, but yeah. Like, you know, it's like, Oh yeah. Like open up an old newspaper for like 1965, like so-and-so sold from, you know, the Boston Celtics to the Chicago Bulls. Like, uh, you know, just to have the word sell. Like that, that, that just just rubs me the wrong way to see that happen. Um, and he, even today, like, um, like I got when, when guys' contracts, you know, get sold. At least we say have the good sense to say like the contract of so and so was sold. Like we don't say like you know, um, whatever. Draft, I can't think of a player rights, anymore. Like you'll that. see. Well, I mean, like a, a pick, oh, yeah, yeah, picks will, will still be sold uh, today. Uh, usually, yeah. like you know, late, later in the second round. But but you can see draft rights sold. In which case, you're you're selling the exclusive negotiating rights with a person. Um, and you know if you if you don't you know euphemize that as much as we do, it's kind of a disturbing thing to think about. I mean, the the thing that you mentioned about about um, compensation for lost, like the heaviest of air quotes here, property, uh, it's pretty analogous to I what no longer exists in the NBA in terms of formalized compensation for losing free agents. It still exists in the NFL and the MLB. Um, but I mean, with restricted free agency, you, if you don't want to lose a player, you can be forced to be given compensation to, to lose them. But, but yeah, you're talking about like players truly being treated as property of the team and that they are then entitled to compensation when their property leaves. When in reality, it is a human being choosing where to work. Like you're, you have a human being choosing where to work and that's treated as a loss of property that is warranting a compensation. Like that's really like a disturbing idea. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's baked into American uh, professional sports. Uh, uh, like I mentioned, you know, much earlier in this interview, uh, restricted free agency is kind of the last vestige of the, of the reserve clause. And like I said, that was, it wasn't slavery, but it was basically indentured servitude, uh, how sports were before 1976. And, uh this is why I, I know it's going to be probably a much too tall order to completely destroy the draft uh, because like people just can't imagine a world without a draft, even though we've had it. Uh, we've talked about uh, like the de facto rookie free agency that was with the NBA and ABA. And, uh, things seemed to work fine. The world survived. Uh, things kept spinning. Uh, but like we can at least get rid of restricted free agency because like that is just almost just like it, the, the term contradicts itself. 
It's like you're a restricted free agent. Like, okay, am I free or am I not? <laughs> yeah, I, I, I wonder what ends up happening with restricted free agency. I, I bet it doesn't go anywhere because like it's some degree of of freedom for players. And, and I think I think it's like a I think that the financial incentives are still strong enough in restricted free agency that you can like stomach it if you're getting other concessions, but yeah, it's not it's not a great institution to have. Oh, see, oh yeah, see, that's my thing. It's like, I, I, and I know this is like the, the players' collective bargain, all this stuff. So, I, but you know, there's also power dis- discrepancies too in their in the negotiating. Um, but mm-hmm. yeah, so I, I know the players have a uh, a greater financial incentive to stay with their team. But like, my underlying point is basically everybody should have a, a level playing field when it comes to the negotiating. Like nobody ought to get a Mm-hmm. a higher playing field uh by being able to offer more money than anybody else um i mean i mean you can offer more money if you want obviously but you shouldn't be able to like um like i can only offer ten dollars but you can offer fifteen dollars like i'm legally denied the right to offer fifteen dollars to somebody but you mm-hmm. can um the negotiation ought to be which one of us can offer the most money okay that's a factor but which also which which one of us also runs the better operation like we talked about uh, from the player's perspective, is that a good geographic location uh, from their mindset with what they want to do with their life? Um, instead of trying to force these guys to go places. Um, and, and I know people think like, oh, well, that means nobody's ever going to want to play for like the Indiana Pacers or the Denver Nuggets. And it's like, you know, the guys got pride. You know, they, they all don't want to just play with, you know, the other star players. Uh, they have their own reputations they want to they want to keep up. Like they want to show that they can run or lead their own team. Um, and I think also that it would, if you have this different model, like guys wouldn't just be attracted to like the, the, the glitzy cities. Like nobody wants to play with the Knicks. Exactly. Like they suck. People hate Exactly. Them. Yeah. No, no one wants to find It's like, maybe, maybe the Lakers will always keep their, their shine. It's like, okay, well fine. There's always something crazy like that. But like the Knicks but, stink. Nobody's ever wanted yeah, to Yeah. And the even Knicks. the Clippers in LA for decades, no one wanted to sign there. Like no, no one has yeah. ever wanted to sign with the Clippers until the last like three years. Like it, it, that's when they got run legitimately. Exactly. So it's like, yeah. And then when, when they got like a racist prick out the door, so it's like, it's, 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 yeah, like that, I, that matters. Like, I think that's a good example. Like if the owner's a jerk and a racist, like that should hurt your team. You shouldn't get an advantage with restricted free agency um, to, to, to help you outbid other people who are running their teams competently. Yeah. Like it will always be harder as the Pacers to sign a free agent than as the Miami heat or Los Angeles Lakers or, you know, whatever it may be. But you know, these things do change. Like the Golden State Warriors were never a marquee free agent destination, and then they became yeah. the powerhouse of the league. Like yeah. you, these things change. If you you know if you become good either through strong management or through sheer luck of you know drafting Stephen Curry, drafting LeBron James, like you you can become something that you weren't. Like you you know, competence comes with a lot of benefits that you know. Yeah. And yeah, the last thing I'll say about this, I'm glad you brought up the Warriors. That shows that, you know, if we did have like a a, a magical free agent system for rookies, like remember like Steph was drafted what, seventh? Seventh. Uh, yeah, yeah, seventh. So like come on, like clearly people weren't knocking at his door to take him number one overall. So like if he had like the, the complete free agent system, yeah. like I think the Warriors probably would still end wound up with him or somebody comparable. And then the Warriors also got, you know, Clay Thompson and Draymond Green pretty deep deep in the draft too. So it's like, so it's like the free agent system can work. Like it could work. And so like, imagine if the Pacers had done that and they could be able to draft some or assign some guys in a free agent rookie class, 
uh, yeah, they, they could build up their franchise and make it into something where people do want to go play for them because they've uh, got some homegrown talent. And they built up something that people are you know wanting to join. They want to get on the bandwagon. Hell, Kevin Durant, good example. Yeah, I mean, th- three teams did just pass on the opportunity to select uh, a guy who was arguably the greatest prospect ever uh, at the time. I mean, in this class alone, like Ben and I both have have a international point guard, Killian Hayes, as a tier one guy, you know, in contention to be a top three pick for sure. And it seems like the NBA more values him in that eight to 12 range. So you know, it's not necessarily going to mean that you know, certain teams are barred from getting the best players because oftentimes the best players aren't even valued as such. Uh so I, I think it like I, I think there are a lot of issues with having rookie free agency, and I don't think it will ever happen because, uh, you know, the Indiana Pacers are never going to agree to that. But uh, oh yeah, that's, that's I, a I good don't, point. They I think they're too stuck in the current system. Like they they, they, yeah, they don't believe in themselves. I <laughs> yeah, I, I don't think we're going to see it, but I, I think that there's definitely more. Uh, like it's more viable than people make it seem, probably. Yeah, no, like, yeah, and I, I don't want to deny that, like, there won't be problems with the rookie free agent system. Like, there's going to be a problem with any system, but I think on balance, it would be better and more fair than what the current system allows for. I wanted sure. to expand a little bit on, you know, quickly the, the point you made about Luca and talk about one more point that I think on, on race that I think is, is germane to this conversation. That's kind of like the the troubling stereotyping based on race, especially, you know, in mainstream draft coverage as, you know, players kind of get pigeonholed uh, oftentimes because of the race. I mean, people doubted Luca because, you know, he got like the, the white unathletic stereotype. Um, and and you, you even see it, in, you know, in, in a draft like this year where, you know, someone like Danny Avdia routinely gets compared to a guy like Danilo Gallinari, who is a white shooter when, you know, he's, he's nothing like that because of, of stereotyping. And then someone like Isaac Okoro has, you know, often gotten like a raw athlete label, presumably because, you know, when he's, when he's not that at all um, because of these stereotypes. So I'm curious, you know, what your thoughts on these stereotypes and maybe some of that origination, where you think they come from and you know, just, just those stereotypes. It is so stupid. Like people just, yeah. yeah. Well, I shouldn't say. I mean, it's a combination of stupid and ignorant. So some of it is like actual, just be people being dumb. Uh, but also some of it is people just don't have lots of uh, points of reference to go with because they just haven't studied a lot of basketball. Uh, it's like I remember when Dirk Dirk Nowitzki was coming into the league, people were like, "Oh my God, he's like Larry Bird." It's like in what way? Like besides both of them being able to shoot really well, like they both they both had long hair at at points. It's like they yeah they played the a game completely different besides being able to shoot really well. But like. I don't see y'all comparing Dirk Nowitzki to Bob McAdoo. Bob McAdoo shot really well, but y'all don't compare him to like, like Larry Bird did all kinds of passing and rebounding and like, just like, did like the um, and of course Larry Bird got called unathletic. It's like okay, what is that supposed to mean? Um, well, here's what it means. It's like um, the, the the white players succeed because they work so hard despite their physical limitations. They've been able to overcome that. They can compete with these black players who. May or may not work hard, but they have all these athletic gifts, um, which is why you get the hustle term, too, thrown around about the white players. Uh, now they try so hard and all that. It's like, no, you think the black guys aren't trying either? Like, but, but yeah, like all the different, you know, the labels, the hustle, the they work hard, the unathletic. Um, like, it's just so silly. Uh, and so, like, yeah, like the last week or so, people have been like, oh, Luka Doncic plays like Larry Bird. It's like, no, he doesn't. Like, he, It's like Larry Bird was a bit... 
not that Luka's a bad shooter, but like Larry Bird is a much better shooter than Luka Doncic. Like if people looked at Luka Doncic's three point percentage, like it's he shoots like 32, 33 percent from three. And like Larry Bird, I think shot almost 40 percent for his career from three point range. And so it's like, okay, we're not talking about the same kinds of guys here. Like they have some similar skills, but it's not like a, the update of Larry Bird. Like yeah, and you're just talking about uh, let's, wild, let's think outside the box. Yeah, wildly different play style. Um, but yeah, they're yeah, like Larry Bird went dribbling like this. <laughs> Yeah, like I mean, the James Harden comparison is kind of right there for Luca. Uh, it is like the, totally that's, the, that's the stylistic similarity, and you don't have to go back to the '80s to find it. Um, he's literally playing the same time right now, like, but one's black and one's white, so you know you, you can't make that comparison. Um, yeah, com- or, the cross, the lack of cross racial comparisons is obviously always very, very. It's very apparent on on like you know ESPN because there are certain uh draft analysts may be even generous but certain people who who are appear on these programs who really are intent on not ever doing cross-racial comparisons uh and it, it's pretty much purely like are you the same height do you maybe maybe look vaguely similar okay uh then you're going to be comp you know danny obvious to to danilo gallinari this guy's could couldn't really be that much more different um they're they're very different players, but I think that like the the role of language and in, in the way the draft is covered in general, it like there are, are certainly like really strong racial elements to it. I mean, so you talked about the uh, characterization of black players as yeah they they have the physical talent and it's the white players who have to overcome the lack of physical talent to to live up to that. But the way that that the physiques of black young black men are described is really really uncomfortable uh in that like the usage of words like specimen freak like all all of these things that really sort of they they portray these prospects as not human and it, it even in ways that are intended to be complimentary they are still inherently dehumanizing yeah, like the Greek freak. I hated that. Like, yeah, when Giannis Antetokounmpo came, Antetokounmpo came in the league, it's like he's the Greek freak. It's like I get that rhymes and he is from Greece, but like, can we not use the word freak about this guy? Oh, uh, and then like you know when they call like Bill LeBron James, like he's like he must be an alien. Like no human can do that. It's like well he is human and he is doing it. So clearly, uh, a human can do it. So like let's try to think of some other language. Uh, yeah, like you said the. Um, the ogling of the bodies too. And then also it's um, the age factor too. Like, um, like I'm thinking back to uh, George McGinnis, um, play for the Indiana Pacers back in the day. Uh, he was called the man child. So it was almost like, like he's presented as like this primal force uh, that's like kind of out of control. Like again, like a man child, he's not quite adult. He's not quite uh, in control of himself, but he was just like physically bruising. And like, he was physically imposing, but like, to call him the man child, it's like just kind of presents like this almost savage character. Uh, when I, I've spoken to George McGinnis, he is a really sweet guy. Like, it's like, he, yeah, clearly he would dunk on you in a basketball game, but like, he's one of the nicest people in the world. So, like, uh, to call him like the man child, um, like, it, yeah, that kind of stuff just rubs me the wrong way. Um, you know, LeBron got similar treatment too. You know, like, is he really, like, are we sure he's really 18 years old? He looks older than that. I mean, Greg Oden got that too. Uh, like, are we sure he's only, you know, 19 years old? Looks a lot older than that. And it's like, uh, it's like, okay, like, I, I get the joke. 
but like we, we don't need to talk about it every single time that Greg Oden is brought up uh, or was brought up, uh, you know, back in the day. Uh, so, so yeah, that 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 language um, is un- unnecessary. And then uh, with white players, actually no, they get back. Yeah, like the white players are presented as intelligent. This actually gets back to an historical problem. Um, Jewish players also got a lot of stereotyping. Like they were described as shifty. That's why they were so good at basketball back in the day. Uh, so like back That's in the 1920s great. and 30s and uh, early 40s, like Jewish players were actually fairly dominant in basketball. Um, really can't figure out a reason why other than like they played in the city and like it, it was popular, very popular in New York City, obviously, which obviously had a huge Jewish population. Uh, but people are like, yeah, it's Jew ball. And like they're just naturally good at it because there's like they're, this is good. This is how the, the perceptions, uh, how racism can kind of warp your perception of a sport. People were like, well, they're so good at basketball because, you know, they're kind of short. They can steal the ball easily from other people. Again, they're cunning and they're shifty. And like, would you describe someone being short as being a, a positive aspect in basketball? Uh, in most cases, I would not. No, I would. <laughs> no, but that's that, that's how it was presented back in the 20s and 30s. That's why the Jewish players were so good because they were shorter than everybody so they could easily steal the ball. And that's, you know, that's that cunning knack the Jews have. You know, they're good at stealing stuff. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so like, even it, even like when when there's an attempt to be, I, I I don't even really want to call that an attempt to be complimentary, but even when like you're talking about Jewish dominance in basketball in the '40s, it's a way like there you find a way to yeah. use this stereotyping to sort of taint it. Like yes, they're dominant, but you know we're we're also going to unleash these vicious stereotypes that explain why they're dominant. That are like I mean it's very very relevant in the case of black players now that it's. Like, yeah, yes, black players are dominant in the NBA, but it's because of these God-given uh, gifts that they have. That's an, another thing that's yeah. a very uncomfortable way to talk about uh, basketball ability. Um, and, and, they, and to bring that back to the uh, the legacy of slavery on that, you know, it's like um, they succeed, black players succeed because of their abilities, uh, or their, you know, their natural abilities, like they haven't worked at it. Uh, you know, that was a reason, an excuse used as to why black people should have been slaves is because like, uh, like they have no initiative, like they really don't have any intelligence. They won't develop their own skills. They have to be like, it's, these like defenders of slavery. They're, they're like, well, we don't like slavery necessarily, but like, this is the only way that black people can be useful in America. You know, they're too dumb otherwise to do anything. They're too lazy. So, uh, but they do have, you know, physical power if only someone smart enough was there to 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 corral and harass it or uh, harness it excuse me um so yeah like that, that that's where that legacy plays in to how we talk about black, black basketball players now it's like you know it's the natural ability like they're uh they're not working at it they're just naturally able to walk out on the court and do it it's like duh anybody playing in the nba has some natural basketball ability that's you know way above and beyond everybody else that's why they're one of the 200 best players in the world that's why they're in this league um, but it, at least it's gotten better where they now do acknowledge like LeBron James is, you know, very intelligent. Like people do talk about how he's able to process what's going on on the court. Uh, but now I worry that it's going to be less LeBron James is thinking and solving the problem. And now they might just start making it like the black players and now just like, uh, like don't drop like their computers. Like, yeah. oh, these have a natural ability. To... Or, or acting entirely off instinct. Um... Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, it won't be like problem solving. It won't be like, oh, they've run across this issue. They, you know, they've thought about it. They've, uh, you know, cracked the code, so to speak. It's just going to be like, oh yeah, they, 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 yeah, they just like, yeah, like you said, instinctual. Like, oh yeah, yeah. They, they just know to do that. 
it's like, again, everybody has basketball instincts. If you play basketball long enough, like I play basketball and like, sometimes I do stuff without thinking about it because it's like, you have reflexes after you play basketball long enough. Like if a rebound's coming, you might just tip it uh, without even thinking. Cause like, that's just the natural thing to do when you play basketball for a while. But um, the issue comes in as to who are you describing that way? Do you describe everybody equally as having that natural instinct? Or are you skewing it toward white players or black players uh, in these different situations? So I, I, that, that's, that's where the, uh, the prejudicial language and the racist language uh, kind of comes into play. Not that anybody's doing it deliberately necessarily. It's just like that's just culturally what's happened over the years in this country. Yeah, and that link, I mean, like you said, it's not deliberate, but that, you know, those, that like ostensibly harmless language with serious racial undertones, you know, is important. You know, like things like questioning age, whether or not it's any truth, almost almost exclusively black players who, you know, have their age questioned, you know, talk talks about as, you know, raw, raw athletes, you know, the white players labeled as, as tough and gritty and hardworking, you know, th- that stuff matters because like it, it fuels our, our unconscious or subconscious biases, you know, about, about these people. Um, and, you know, th- that's important. And, you know, just the, the way that we talk about basketball and we talk about race as, as, as culture, you know, it, it, it's, it's problematic uh, w- without most people even realizing that, that it's problematic. You know? Yeah. I guess the, the last thing that I really wanted to say was uh, I feel like it's the role of, of draft analysts like ourselves to just speak responsibly about these people. Like I, I will certainly be harsh on this podcast. I'm not a person who believes that uh, you should only focus on the positive in, in prospects. Like, no, you, you got to be honest. That's the only way that you can have credibility. However, I think that it is absolutely incumbent upon people like us to be responsible in how we talk about prospects and afford them the dignity that they deserve as people. Um, so it's, you know, to obviously askew uh, racialized terms like, specimen or something like that uh it's it's to you know skew behaviors like uh ogling bodies and and whatnot um but it's it's really it's just to to treat these people like like human beings not like assets um like you know people that that if if something even in, in the case of like you know something happens on the court there there could well be a human explanation for it like it's why you know it's important to add context to all of these things to try to like get an idea of who the this this player is as a person and and really just like afford them that it's why i'm you know i'm big on i think that it's not really it's not fair to prospects to watch two or three games and make conclusions about them or it's not it's not fair to to apply generalizations to them it's kind of why i don't like the idea of of hard and fast rules like there are obviously philosophies that come into play with draft analysis but hard and fast rules bother me because it's like okay this is a tall player with good feel i have to be high on them well that's not really fair to any of these prospects because they have to be examined on a case-by-case basis because they're not just they're not um you know they're not collections of statistics and and bodies and whatnot They're, they're people and you have to give them the the fair shot that they deserve so i think that that that's really the responsibility that draft analysts certainly have is to really consider each prospect as a person uh, and to give them the the time and attention that they deserve. I think that that that's really incumbent upon all draft analysts. Yeah. And I guess my final thought would be uh, for you guys and actually for anybody in any uh, walk and work of life, uh, 
if you're describing somebody else, uh, you, like you're writing out the language or you're thinking about talking with somebody, uh, imagine if the language is used back towards you and how you would feel about that word being used. It's like, would you feel fine? Someone's like, oh, you're a specimen. It's like, it's like, what the hell is that supposed to mean? Like, uh, <laughs> like, I don't think anybody wants to be called a specimen uh, in most cases, especially by a stranger. Like, you don't, you don't want to be, you know, called that. Uh, so yeah, like like read read over the words uh, and ha have an awareness, or at least ask somebody like that like does this sound right to you? Like, do you think this might offend somebody? Uh, like, um, like I'm a black man, but like we 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 have a a fairly sexist society. I think it's safe to say. Um, so like over the years, I've had to uh, moderate and change my language um, to not say stupid misogynist things. Uh, so. Uh, same thing goes for, uh, you know, people of different races talking about each other. Uh, and like, obviously, you know, we grew up in a racist society. So, like, we're inadvertently, hopefully inadvertently, uh, going to use uh, racist language. But, like, don't, don't try try not to. Uh, try to be more aware uh, and try to have, you know, a big enough social circle where you're going to have people be able to call you out on it before you embarrass yourself in front of the whole world uh, <laughs> with some of the language you might use. Yeah, so I... I think that's all we have uh, today. Thank you so much to Curtis for educating us and, and educating our audience, you know, in the current climate of the world and, you know, what, what's going on in the NBA. I, I think this conversation was, was hugely valuable, you know, better understanding the history, history of race and, and labor and, and, and what we cover and what we love and, you know, how we can be proactive uh, about making positive changes. So huge, huge thank you to Curtis. Like you said, he runs, what is it, Pro Hoops History on Twitter, right? Yep. Yeah. And at this point, if there's anything you, you'd like to plug, anything you'd like to say, Curtis, uh, you have the floor. Uh, yeah, just I would say the easiest thing is just to uh, go to Twitter. That's my social media of choice. Uh, I've tried others. I hate them all. Twitter's the only one I can stomach. <laughs> uh, so I don't know what that says about me. Uh, but if you go to, the same. Yeah, I, I'm, uh, I'm go like to Twitter – at Pro Hoops History that has a link in my uh, Twitter bio to my uh, Substack newsletter. Uh, so I like I typically write two to three articles a week, uh, but I'm taking my uh, month-long hiatus to try to wrap up my big draft of my dissertation so I can finally you know, graduate. Uh, <laughs> that's really important. Uh, so yeah, y'all give that a follow, uh, either the newsletter or the, tweet, uh, the Twitter account. Uh, yeah, whenever I finish a dissertation, and I make that publicly available, y'all can learn all about uh, how the NBA got formed, the labor movement, the racial protests, uh, or the protests against racism in the NBA back in that era, the 50s, 60s, and 70s. Uh, a lot about what we talked about today. Uh, it'd just be a lot of 250 pages, a lot of pages on it. Uh, I love writing it. So I hope y'all love reading it when it comes out. I will, you know, go read that when it's out. Uh, subscribe to Curtis's newsletter. Uh, it's outroing us. Uh, you can follow our pod at Prep Number Two Pro Pod on Twitter as always. Uh, follow Max at Max A Carlin. And follow me on Twitter at Ben underscore Pfeiffer underscore. And unless there's anything else uh, either of you want to say, I think we're gonna we're gonna end it. All right. Thank you all so much for listening, and have a nice day.